0: Welcome to the Hope CC Resources Podcast, where we revisit sermons, talks, and discussions from the archives of Hope Community Church in Minnesota. If you would like to find more resources from Hope Community Church, please visit hopeccresources.com or download the Hope CC app. Today's resource is a message by Pastor Cor Shemaleski called, Put to Death the Misdeeds of the Body. It was originally given on April 27th, 2008, as part of the series Be Killing Sin or It Will Be Killing You. You can find all other messages from this series by visiting hopeccresources.com or by downloading the Hope CC app. My name's Core. I am uh, the associate pastor here at, at Hope. I made a commitment to um, follow Jesus back in 1997, uh, April 1997, and that summer of 97, I uh, was kind of wondering if this whole thing was actually going to stick. You know, like, did what I thought I did in April, you know, come June or July, and that really happened. It's like, like you know when you exercise and then you shower too soon after, and then like you get out of the shower and it, like, it didn't take, you're like still sweating? It's, it was like, It was like one of those deals. Like, did that thing really take back in April? By God's grace, in that September, September 97, randomly, crazily, by God's grace, was put in the same bedroom as a guy uh, at the U who just loved God, believed in Christ, followed him, prayed to him, read his Bible to get to know more about him, and that guy uh, greatly impacted my life. So much so that I was, began looking for a church uh, with my then-girlfriend, Jill. Uh, I guess it would have been, yeah around that time, and, and did some of that church shopping thing like I'm sure many of you have done or maybe are in the process of doing, uh, even right now, um, and Hope is one of those stops, but we came to Hope Community Church because uh, Jill's brother, Chris, had begun attending there and said it was a great, great place, and one of the things I love about Hope is our desire for community. We, man, Steve and I and the other ministry leaders here at Hope and, and just the people that come we love to get to know each other. We love that. I I want to get to know you. I want to have you over to my house for breakfast or lunch or dinner and get to know you. And it's hard. As we get bigger, it gets hard to do that. And so coffee and Facebook and all these other things will have to suffice, I'm, I'm guessing, for some of that relationship to happen. But, man, we we try to get to know you, try to get to know your names and your faces and what's going on in your life, and, and we will forget your name. Uh, Ironically, Steve is really good at remembering names. And it took him about seven times to get my name. Can you believe that? Like, it's it's almost comedic to look back and think like I, I just I'd walk up to him and you know, I mean, we Jill and I would come together, and I guess most people are gonna, you know, attention gonna be drawn to Jill, you know, she's better looking and all that stuff. She just rolled her eyes, but. It's like, all right, I, I'm in the background. Maybe you didn't recognize me, but, I mean, Steve just, like, six times, just as if he had never seen me before, you know? <laughs> and, and so it's like, that's just that's just a warning to you. If we're forgetting your name, you might be on our staff in a couple of years. So, <laughs> but he he forgot my name, and, and so uh, over time I got I got a bagel. There was a bagel with a pastor thing that they did, and so I got a bagel with Steve. He heard my story, and started just being around hope, and then heard on the screen, you know, it was put up on the screen, they needed help with the connection time. And so called, it was like Laura Lee or Annie Steinley, one of those two, and just said, that whole connection thing, making coffee, I don't know how to do that. I don't drink coffee, but can I do that? And they said, yeah, what do you, what do you, you know, like once every month, once every six weeks, how often are you going to do it? It's like, No, I'm gonna do it. That's that's all I know how to do. I don't know anything about God or the Bible or Christ. I could wound and hurt a lot of people, so I'm gonna do that. Can I do that? Can I just can I just cut up donuts and make coffee and we'll just that will be what I do? And they said, yeah. And I'm sure they were thinking, you know, one week this guy's out of here. But for a year and a half, every Sunday, didn't know how to do much more, and so that's what I did. And that's how I got connected and meet people the band. They'd come down and steal all my coffee that I'd make, and then I'd have to make more. And that's how I got to meet though, the pastoral staff, and uh, that's what I did for a year and a half. Things were happening in my life uh, with my undergrad degree, changing from chemical engineering and aspirations of MIT, Spencer, wherever you are. You're living the dream that I could never fulfill, my friend, so... (laughs) I'll vicariously just live through you. I'll check in via Facebook. Let me know how it's going. And So I went, you know, this, you know, switched from chemical engineering to made a stop at civil engineering for a couple of weeks and then said no. And then I went over to math and, and that stuck and I thought I was going to be a teacher and, and football coach. But God was just doing something in my life and talking with Jill and getting married and did the substitute teaching thing for a while. And was like, I think ministries could be a... Potential step, but again, still feeling very untrained and unequipped. So went off to God just provided a job over at Bethel and they pay all your tuition, which is sweet. And so that's that's the road I went on. Comes around to the end of graduation time, like you guys, like where what am I gonna do? What is this? Master of Divinity actually gets you in the in the world. And so heard hope was looking for somebody as a pastor of outreach and assimilation. It's like I don't even know what assimilation means. Am I <laughs> am I qualified for that? Would I would I fit the bill for that? And so I jump in, I throw my hat in the ring and get in this candidate pool, and and they really use some weird words when it came to this whole job interviewing process. They were use words like flirting and dating and courting and marriage. And it's like what I, mean, I want to interview for the job, the open position. They're like, yeah. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to flirt with a bunch of people. We're just going to flirt with everybody. <laughs> then we'll make the decision to, you know, date some of them, and then we'll just organize them, line them up, and we will court the first person. We'll just, you know, we'll go with the first person, and if that person makes it all the way, we'll hire them. If not. For whatever reason, we'll go on second person, and then take it from there. So I said, "Okay," and and periodically wouldn't hear. I just I'd go weeks and not hear anything, so I'd, I'd call and just be like, "Hey, what's what's going on? We still flirting?" <laughs> 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 and, and, and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, we're yeah, yep, yeah, we're, we're we'll still." There's st- still, still, yep, flirting, and another couple weeks go on, and come back, and still in that flirting stage? Yeah, we're still in the flirting stage. Still flirting with me? <laughs> yeah, we're still flirting with you. And so this kind of goes on, and I end up getting, getting hired at, at Hope uh, back in 2004. And the imprint that Hope, uh, since that time and before that time, as kind of an undergrad Uh, The imprint that hope has had on my life has been uh, significant, and one of the things I feel like that hope has done for me that I missed in all my church upbringing, and even to some of the churches I shopped around for, I feel like hope does a great job of saying, it is about God, and it's not about you, it's about God. God. And I feel like time and time again, whether it's from Steve preaching or from the different classes or the small groups or the different things, spring retreat and others that I've been a part of here at Hope, I feel like that is a common expression. Just it is about God and not about you. It is for his glory and not yours. We're in the middle of a series, we're second week of a a kind of probably 10 week series on the mortification of sin. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And if you're new to us, if you haven't been around Hope long enough, you might hear this and think, this is the big thing at Hope. It's not. It's important. (laughs) It's significant. We want you to hear this. But do not miss the fact that it is about God and not about you. We want you to, whether it's in this place or wherever you go when you're not here, to worship God, to know that it is about God and it's not about you. And we want you to get on mission with God and live for God. And worship him and honor him and give thanks to him. We are in the second week of a series called Be Killing Sin or It Will Be Killing You. But each day, I'm really really thankful to Steve. Uh, Since we've got into this and been studying this, he's come up with three things that he prays every morning. I want to list them for you. Number one, worship God. He does not want to lose focus in this effort to kill sin in his life. And as he preaches about it and teaches about it, and encourages us to kill sin in our lives, he does not want to miss out on the main point, which is God. Number one, when he wakes up in the morning, I want to worship God. Number two, he wants to kill sin. He says, what can I do to kill sin in my life, to root it out, to kill it, to weaken it, to obliterate it? What, what can I do? And then number three, he says he wants to do as much damage to the kingdom of darkness as possible that day. As he wakes up, and this, I don't know how long this has been going on since we've been studying this, this book as pastors, but he's been praying those three, three things as he wakes up. I think it's a great, a great example for us. The outline of the sermon series, we're in uh, week two. Last week we le- looked at what is sin. Steve did a great job from Genesis to Revelation t- taking a look at what is sin. And some of you may have went on to his blog and talked, just kind of gave your definition of sin, how you understand it, how you see it uh, played out in the in the Bible. This week we're going to move on to... The second part, why is the mortification of sin critical? And Steve will then follow it up with two more sermons dealing with that. That'll take us through chapter four of the book. If any of you are following along at home, um, these next three sermons will cover chapters one, two, three, and four. There are three more or four more books out there. Also, it's online. Steve mentioned that last week. And then you'll see the ensuing weeks, uh, the different topics that we'll we'll study. I want to just hit real briefly, for those of you who maybe weren't here last week, what is sin? Lots of passages were were shared. Uh, I want to take you to Romans 1, verses 18 to 25. This is where I get my uh, understanding of sin from. Been memorizing parts of Romans. Really great book. Love it. It says this, "...for the wrath of, of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness." And unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature. I want to highlight those t- two things for you eternal power and divine nature. For me, I'm going to use words interchangeably within this sermon. When I talk about eternal power, I'm going to be, I'm going to be sometimes referencing it as the greatness of God eternal power, his long lasting, his everlasting power, his greatness. There's more to it than that, but we're gonna be using those interchangeably. And then as far as his divine nature, his goodness. Both God's greatness and his goodness have been on display ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been, that have been made. Wanna to flip to the next slide? A picture of anybody? Anybody? What is that? Sun, yes, yeah, the sun. Yeah, good, okay. Great. That's the sun. Uh, that's one of the things that God made. In the sun, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. How, how so? I want you guys to, uh, I, 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 I probably spent 30 minutes, maybe up to 45 minutes, looking at things that describe and define and help me understand the sun. And what I did in 30 to 45 minutes, I got about two or three minutes to to get you to that same point of awe and wonder. So if you can just kind of close your eyes, and maybe you don't need to close your eyes, but if in your, just mind's eye, if you can go there, I want you to picture the earth. You've gotten to know the earth, perhaps in travel, uh, in your car, uh, taking a plane, and some, you have some grasp, not perfect, but you have some grasp of the earth. Are you there in your mind's eye? You're, you're traveling in your car, and you know how long it takes to get to Iowa or back to Kenosha or Wausau. You know how long it's taken you to fly to California or wherever it is you fly, East Coast or West Coast. And then expand that. Get, get bigger. Maybe you've gone halfway around the world. How long it took you to fly around the world Get in your mind's eye that grasp of how big this earth is. Are you there? Do you have a picture of how big the earth is? Okay, stay there. I want you to stay there, and we're going to use this to help us better understand the sun. The mass of the sun is 1.9 times 10 to the 30th kilograms. That means nothing. In your mind's eye, stay there. Do you have the picture of the earth? The weight of the earth. Do you understand how big this earth is? Okay, that is 332,946 Earths to equal the weight of the sun. Are you there? Picture one Earth. How big it is. Two, three, 332,000. I got it off Wikipedia. I think it's pretty close to right. They, <laughs> they reference NASA, so I'm, I'm thinking this is pretty close. But even if they're off by percentages... Are you there as far as weight goes? Okay, stay there with the earth in your mind. The size, the volume of the earth. Okay, the volume of the sun being 1.4 times 10 to the 27th meters cubed. 1,300,000 earths to equal the volume of the sun. Are you there? Think of multiplying the earth that many times, putting that many earths inside the sun. The temperature, listed as 5,778 Kelvin. I don't usually measure in Kelvin, so to take that to Fahrenheit, 9,941 degrees Fahrenheit. Think of how white hot. And that was part of the research. It talked about the color of the sun, and we see it in yellowish, orangish, but yet, if you could see it as it is, white hot. Are you there in your mind's eye of the greatness of, of just the sun, which is much less than God. God created that. The greatness of God. Where does the goodness of God come in? The fact that the sun does not kill you. <laughs> I'm dead serious. Think of that. The power, the magnitude, the awesomeness of the sun. And the fact that it doesn't kill you, but in fact nourishes the earth, nourishes plants, nourishes us. So God puts it 1.4 times 10 to the 11th meters away from us, a distance such that it gives life and it yields life, but then totally just wipes us out. 8.31 minutes at light speed. That's how far God puts it away from us, so that it can be good. That eternal power, that divine nature, have been been clearly perceived. Every one of us has seen the sun. Every one of us in the history of the world has seen that on display. The greatness and goodness of God. So we're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Creator God, the goodness and greatness of our creator, and somehow in sin, We claim to be wise. We claim to have understanding that says, that brings into question the greatness of God or the goodness of God in our lives. Something happens and we say, this is good. How can God possibly say it's bad? Or there's something that seems so gigantic in our lives and it causes us to question, is God big enough? Is God strong enough? Is he able is he powerful enough? And every time we say, he's just not, he's not good enough, he's not powerful enough, sin right there. You question that. And instead of worshiping the Creator and putting him in his rightful place, we rather turn to creature. New York Times bestseller uh, this is happening, this is happening. Uh, This whole creator turning to creature or mortal man or animals or reptiles. This is how it's put in one uh, famous book here. Seeing beauty in a flower could awaken humans, however briefly, to the beauty that is an essential part of their own innermost being, their true nature. The first recognition of beauty was one of the most significant events in the evolution of human consciousness, the feelings of joy. And love are intrinsically connected to that recognition of inner beauty. Without our fully realizing it, flowers would become for us an expression in form of that which is most high, most sacred, and ultimately formless within ourselves, that we haven't quite become like the flower. Flowers more fleeting, more ethereal, and more delicate than the plants out of which they emerged would become like messengers Of another realm, like a bridge between the world of physical forms and the formless. They not only had a scent that was delicate and pleasing to humans, but also brought a fragrance from the realm of spirit. Using the word enlightenment in a wider sense than the conventionally accepted one, we could look upon flowers as the enlightenment of plants. This is this is the stuff that's being New York number one, New York Times bestseller. a man named Eckhart Tolle, uh, who's good friends with anybody. Anybody aware of this? Raise the hands who've heard about this. Yeah, yeah. I mean this is this is the this is the Kool Aid that our culture is drinking. This is exchanging the glory of God, God's eternal power. In divine nature, being reduced to a flower, of which when the Bible talks about flower, it says, no, a flower like a rich man quickly fades away. And here, the flower being all, the most sacred, the most true. That's my definition of sin. That's where I think of doubting God's greatness and goodness and turning to other things, lesser things, things not even worthy of comparison to God. That brings us to John Owen, Mortification of Sin, this book, this thing that we're using as our outline, as the basis of this uh, be killing sin or be killing you. Who is John Owen? Who is John Owen? Not not much is known about him uh, compared to perhaps other theologians and pastors, other theological writers, uh, but we do have some things. Number one, he... If it wasn't his conversion, he definitely became assured of his salvation, assured that he had life in Christ, eternal life, life that would not end at the grave, but he'd be raised with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly realms. He had an assurance of salvation at 26 years old. He went to hear a guy, but that guy wasn't there, and so there was a fill-in. JV guy. Guys like me, gives me hope. Uh, This guy... With one comment brought John Owen to the place where he was assured of his salvation, the guy said, "Why are you fearful, oh you of little faith?" John Owen, realizing he had doubted the greatness and goodness of God, boom, just assured of his salvation in that. Number two: marriage of 31, yield 31 years, yields 11 children, all but one, die. In infancy, his life was marked by continual loss. That last daughter got married, came back shortly after being married, died of tuberculosis. His wife dies eight years before he does. His life marked by continual loss. On average, every three years during his adult life, he lost a kid. Number three, he publishes his first book in 1643, it marks him as a Calvinist and a confrontational writer. He's speaking out. He's talk about revealing Arminianism. Felt like his salvation, the assurance of his salvation, how that all worked out. Yes, preacher, this word, this specific question you have little faith that comes to him, and he's just like, God planned that. God did that. He worked that. And became part of his theology a strong strong belief in predestination, God causing everything sovereign bringing it about, making it happen. And so he writes this book, and it marks him as a Calvinist and a confrontational writer willing to engage in theological debate. He's a pastor, number four there, which means he's not just an academic writing all these books and articles disconnected from people. He's involved with people. It talks about him choosing to sleep four hours a night so that he can keep up the rigorous schedule with which his life demands. Being a pastor, being a writer, being a theologian, being a, a father, uh, being a husband, all these things, and actually probably uh, at the end of his life, he feels like he points back to that rigorous schedule and doing all these things probably what shortened his life. Number five, he spoke uh, to the parliament, catapulting him into political affairs from 1646 all the way up to 1660. There was an English Reformation slash Civil War going on at this time in England in surrounding area in which he sided with Parliament and some of these po- folks uh, became known as Puritans and they said the English Reformation in the church didn't come far enough. You guys are holding st- too much to the traditional old church. It didn't come far enough and so he separates himself, puts him on a, uh, a different front than the monarchy and the Church of England. And he's for 14 years he's just back and forth within this political controversy and spiritual controversy around the church so much so that in 1660, the monarchy definitely has control. Charles II, and he is viewed as a fugitive pastor, and even pastors, I think it was like a couple thousand, are just barred from the pulpit in 1662. So he is underground in different places, still writing, still teaching, still trying to pastor, still trying to get words of encouragement out. So that's some life-changing events, life-marking events of John Owen. What is he known for? What is... Because those events really aren't what he's known for. What is he known for? This quote says, More important than all is a diligent endeavor to have the power of the truth professed, things that we say about our faith and contend for, abiding on our hearts, that we may not contend for notions, but that we have practical acquaintance within our souls. When the heart is cast indeed in the mold of doctrine that the mind embraceth, when the evidence and necessity of truth abides in us, when not the sense of the words only is in our, he- in our heads, but the sense of the thing abides in our hearts. Sum it up. When we have communion with God in these doctrines that we contend for, then shall we be garrisoned by the grace of God against all the assaults of men. Then shall we be prepared, ready, ready, by the grace of God against all these assaults of men. Worship God, number one. Worship God, communion with God, what he is known for. Number two, killing sin, mortification of sin. I hope I may acknowledge in sincerity that my heart's desire unto God and the chief design of my life in the station wherein the good providence of God has placed me are that mortification and universal holiness or universal obedience in everything may be promoted in my own and in the hearts and ways of others, to the glory of God, that so the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ may be adorned in all things. On his list, worship God, kill sin. And then he looks around and he sees sin, different evidences, three of them, of sin, in the church happening at the time amongst professors. People say, I'm a Christian. And they profess things. And he's saying, are these truly abiding in your hearts? Because that's what I see. Those are the visible things I see. I see inability with temptations, peace that you have with the world, divisions amongst yourselves. And so he writes the mortification to press more effectually on the consciences of men, the work of considering their ways. He wants to say, look, look at your life, examine yourself. Paul does the same thing in the scriptures. Examine yourself, test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. And number two, he wants to give more clear direction for the achieving of the end proposed. Salvation. What do we do as we take hold of salvation? How do we continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Philippians 2 says? So that's John Owen. Coming to chapter one, part part one. Why is the mortification of sin critical? And in chapter one, John Owen just basically lays it all out there. He says, this is the truth that's in the Bible me coming along in the 1600s doesn't change anything. I'm taking from what is the Bible and probably bringing out uh, further application, further integration, study, and understanding about this particular verse to help you. But this isn't a, a, a great truth that we hold to. And it comes in Romans 8.13. If you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. If you. Who's you? You. Believer. Earlier on in chapter 8, it talks about those who have no condemnation, for they're in Christ. It says this is for you if you have the Spirit of God in you. This is for believers. I don't know if you've ever been in a place in your life. Uh, I find this from time to time where I just get upset with um, people that aren't doing Christian things, um, but they're not a Christian. They don't believe in God, and yet I sometimes hold them to that standard of like, well, don't do that. Why? Why don't do that? So you, you shouldn't do that either. But they don't have the Spirit of God. They don't have Christ. They're not living for Him. So why? Why would they? Why would I expect them? If I have a hard enough time following God in my life and I have the Spirit, how much more difficult for them who doesn't have the Spirit? First John 5, 12 says, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So be clear. In this verse, it's not saying, if you mortify the deeds of your body, if you do a great job of that, then you'll get life. John Owen's very clear. And the Bible's very clear. It comes through faith in Christ, belief in God. If you have the Son, you have life. So what is he talking about? We'll get to that a little bit later. Galatians 5 remarks, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. You, believers. This this verse is for believers in Christ. John Owen puts it this way. The pressing of this duty of mortification immediately on any other is a notable fruit of that superstition and self-righteousness that the world is full of. The great work and design of men ignorant of the gospel. Have you ever done this? like you're wrestling against some sin and something happens through the course of your day that maybe you're able to overcome that sin or you don't think about that sin and so it comes to the next day and you're like, how can I duplicate that same day as yesterday? That's superstition. If you're trying to do that, that's that's what he's talking about. That's a self-righteousness, something coming about apart from the spirit and that's the next part. If you, through the spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Owen puts it this way all other ways of mortification are in vain. All helps, all other helps out there that you could possibly cling to, all this, all the all the other representations like this are helpless, he says. It must be done by the Spirit. Romans 9 speaks about that. Men, as the apostle intimates, may attempt this work on other principles by means and advantages, administered on other accounts, as they always have done and do. But says he, this is the work of the Spirit. By him alone is it to be wrought, and by no other power is it to be brought about. Mortification from a self-strength, carried on by ways of self-invention, unto the ends of self-righteousness, is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. One of the earmarks of this book, A New Earth, Awakening to Your Life's Purpose, is somehow you're going to overcome ego. And the author is smart enough to help you overcome ego. He's figured it out, how to overcome ego. Does anybody see anything ironic about that statement? <laughs> Just such a statement is an arrogant statement. I mean, that, that is ego. We need the Spirit. It's through the Spirit that we're able to mortify the deeds of the body. It says this in Romans 7, My brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we serve no more under the old written code but in the new life of the Spirit. The old life has died. There's no means that the old life can use now in the life of the Spirit. Romans eight twelve also, So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors. We're indebted. But it's not to the flesh. And to live according to the flesh. We're not indebted to the flesh, we're indebted to the spirit, because the spirit brings life. If you want to mortify the deeds of the body, it comes out through the spirit. What is this body, and what is mortification? This idea of mortifying the deeds of the body. Are all the deeds of the body bad? No, it can't possibly mean walking, sleeping, those kind of things. So what does it mean? What does this body refer to? I love Owen's, and boy, it's tough to get a better definition of the body than, than what he puts here. The body then here is taken for that corruption and depravity of our natures, whereof the body in a great part is the seat and instrument, the very members of the body being made servants unto righteousness. It is dwelling sin, the corrupted flesh or lust that is intended to. Every part of you that wants to so quickly doubt and forget the greatness and goodness of God. That that part of you that then carries out these deeds. That's what he's saying. That needs to die. Mortify this verb is used once in the New Testament right here. As a preacher and like pastor, you like to cross-reference and like, "Hey, how's that word used in, you know, this other book of the Bible?" You go looking for it, it's like, oh, this is the only time it's used with regards to killing deeds of the body. The other time this verb is used in the New Testament, it's talked about like killing somebody, like killing Jesus. We're going to kill that guy, Jesus. And so this verb is taken from that context, and Paul uses it, the Spirit uses it here in this, and says what they were going to do to Jesus in killing. Same thing. It's like, whoa. Owen says, To kill a man or any other living thing is to take away the principle of all his strength, vigor, and power, so that he cannot act or exert upon forth or put forth any proper actings of his own. So it is in this case. Indwelling sin is compared to a person, a living person called the old man, with his faculties and properties, his wisdom, craft, subtleties, strength, Stop right there. Any of you guys played sports against somebody who's like m- markedly older than you, 10 to 15 years older than you, and just surprised at their ability to like compete? Anybody? Am I the only one? Like, I'll go play basketball and these guys will be like, gray hair just like, I'm going to wipe the floor with you. And they like, they've learned, they have this. Faculties, properties, wisdom, craft, subtlety, strength, they have that. That old man... He's good. I, we went down to Texas, played with my great uncle. He's like 70s. This was a couple years ago now. Played golf. And that guy could hit no further than 150 yards. We tell him the scores at the end. He beat me. I'm like, there it is, man. Craft. He's got faculty as an old guy, he's got skills. This, says the apostle, must be killed, put to death, mortified. That is to have its power, life, vigor, and strength that produces its effects taken away by the Spirit. If you look at sin in your life as that old man, man, does sin not know where you are? Weak? When you are tempted? What times of the day? What situations? What environments? He's an old man. Crafty. Subtle. Wiley he wants to take you out. We need to kill him for the purpose that we might live. I don't know exactly what that all means. You shall live. I, I, I presume that for each of us it's a little bit different. I presume that just like our relationship with God differ so does this, application. But as I think back to the times where I've experienced like that feeling of death and emptiness, like what the opposite of that is in times in my life where I felt like glimmers and experiences of life, there's times where I struggled with a sin that was really entrenched in my life, and for a, there was just a time of of like an entire month where God just slowly worked that out as a habitual sin in my life. And I had a clear conscience. And I was like, wow. I haven't had that in years. That's the kind of life. One example, vigor, power, comfort of our spiritual life. Owen says, perhaps you shall live, may not only intend eternal life, and I'm going to agree with him, but also the spiritual life in Christ, which we have, not as to the essence and being of it. That's once for all. That's with Christ on the cross, gives it to you, a gift, not not as a wage that you can earn, that you deserve, gift, not essence and being, which is already enjoyed by believers, but as to the joy, comfort, and vigor of in this, the vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life, that... Depends on the mortification of deeds of the flesh. Thinking back to the the, whatever impression you had as I took you through that whole understanding of the sun and the greatness and the goodness of the sun and what he does, think of what he can do with that comet. You shall live. If your God is that big, that great, that good, imagine what the potential for this promise in your life. It's incredible the amount of good this great God could bring. One word I haven't talked about, if. If you, by the Spirit, mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Why is the mortification of sin critical? Ultimately, it comes down to your choice, your decision, a decision the will. To say, God, I will kill that sin in my life. Owen puts it this way, there's a certain infallible or unfailing connection and coherence or consistency between true mortification and eternal life. He's saying there is a connection. This is how you take hold of that eternal life and receive the gift of God. If you do mortify, you shall live. It's a promise. If you use this mean, you shall obtain that end. And herein lies the motive, the critical nature, the why, the big why of mortification of sin and it's the enforcement of this duty prescribed. And what comes right before verse 8:13 is earlier earlier in verse 13 it says for if you live according to the flesh you will die. If you live according to the flesh you will die. This is a struggle. It's hard. Each of us at a different place. I want to I want to highlight one person struggling. How they uh, wrote it down on the back of a communication card. I've secured this person's um, willingness to have this shared. It's uh, I've made it anonymous, and uh, this is what it looks like. This battle to mortify sin. All week long, I starve. This is on the back of a communication card. Something that he wanted Steve and I to pray for. All week long, I starve for what God forbids even though I know it's poison. I'm afraid my needs won't be met. Pray that I have the courage to get past this and return to the Lord. My world, the world I live in every day, is a pit of temptation in which I sometimes dream of falling. These dreams haunt me. I'm split between my desire to love God And my desire to throw myself into something that would break his heart. And I'm to pretend like I don't have this struggle. Yet, even while I pretend I'm not Humpty Dumpty fallen from the wall, I flirt with the enemy almost compulsively just to keep the door to sin open in case I might otherwise miss out on something. That's the struggle. The goodness and greatness of God in doubt, in question. Wanting you to keep the door of sin open a little bit so as to not miss out. I want to share a little bit of my processing in this and, and my own personal wrestling with, with these words and the words of Scripture. And I feel like the question that God has brought to me is this, how much longer will you continue to believe That the pleasures of sin are worthy of comparison to the life I, the good and the great one, can give. O you of little faith. That's the question that comes to me and has been coming to me this week. The pleasures of sin are not even worthy of comparison to the greatness and the goodness and the life that God can bring. I want to ask if you'll do something. I want to ask if this day, the rest of this day, and the rest of this week, each of the next six mornings until we see each other again, if you'll make a commitment to worship God, to kill sin, and to do as much damage to the kingdom of darkness as possible. And I know a bunch of you men are going to have a first application tonight at softball where you're going to get the chance to kill certain sins that creep up every softball season. But wherever you're at, will you make that commitment to worship God, to kill sin, to do as much damage to the kingdom of darkness as possible? Because the promise, the beauty of the promises, if you, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body, you shall live. Will you pray with me? Father, we, uh, we thank you, first and foremost, for who you are. You are a great God, and you are a good God, and we look no further than the cross. The Son does reveal your eternal power and divine nature, but the Son, Jesus, has shown us all the more clearly your greatness and goodness towards us. God, I pray for each one of us. Uh, Perhaps people are in here this morning needing to hear about your goodness and greatness. Perhaps there's people in here needing to hear that they need to mortify that sin, to weaken it like an old man, to rob it of its vigor, to rob it of its strength, to do whatever they can to mortify that sin in their life. Maybe they need to hear that this morning. And for those that by your grace are worshiping you and killing sin maybe they need to then step out in faith and do as much damage to the kingdom of darkness as possible talking to a friend talking to a coworker praying for somebody Be- sign up for the 24 hour prayer encouraging somebody in the faith explaining a truth to somebody who doesn't believe maybe they're able to share the hope for what they have in you But God, these words, my words, any illustrations, stories will fall flat apart from your spirit. It's only by your spirit, God. Our faith is not in ourselves. Our faith is not in an inner beauty that we can try and find in ourselves or see in a flower. Our faith is in Christ, the good and great God that we serve. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.